Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I am your host, James DiPietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Council member Jessica Rivas represents District 5 on the Pasadena City Council. As someone who never originally aspired to seek public office, Jess decided to become more engaged following the 2016 election to try to address some of our most demanding issues. After Victor Gordo was elected mayor, Jess was appointed by the city council to fill his seat last year. Now running to serve a full term, she is seeking to continue her important role in the council and one in which she is uniquely qualified. Jess grew up in Santa Clarita to a family that had deep roots in public service and they would serve as role models throughout her life. She attended Princeton and earned her law degree from NYU. After law school, she served as Deputy Attorney General with the California Department of Justice and eventually made her way back here as Deputy County Counsel with LA County. Interested in military service since high school, she joined the US Army Reserve and rose to the rank of major before retiring last year. When Jess and her husband moved to Pasadena, she jumped right in, volunteering with her local neighborhood association and as a commissioner for both the Northwest Commission and the Commission on the Status of Women. She's also an alum of Emerge California, an organization that trains Democratic women to run for elected office. In her brief time on the council, she has shown real leadership in how she handles not only complex legislative and neighborhood issues, but also community and constituent outreach. So without further delay, my conversation with council member Jessica Rivas. Jess, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So you're an attorney, a veteran, a community leader. So to start our conversation, can you share a little bit about more about your background? As I know that you grew up in Santa Clarita to an immigrant family and attended Saugus High School. Yeah, I, I definitely see myself as part of the classic immigrant story or arc of people moving this to this country to make a better life, better life for themselves and their children. But lucky me, I was the child in that equation. So my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents, they did all the hard work, which I've always been really aware of and is a big reason why I've been drawn to public service and as a way to give back. So my family came from Central and South America to the San Fernando Valley initially. Uh, my dad's from Guatemala. On my mom's side, her mom's side is Mexican American. And I think going back on along that way, I'm, I guess makes, that makes me fourth generation American on that side. But her dad, my grandfather was from Brazil. And actually one of his first jobs in the U.S. was here in Pasadena at the Langham, um, which was called something else back in the early 60s. I think it was the Huntington. Um, and he was an electrician by training, but I think he worked as some sort of like handyman window washer for a few years right here in Pasadena at the Langham. But yeah, my parents both grew up in the San Fernando Valley. They ended up buying a home in Santa Clarita after my sister and I were born. And it was a great place to grow up. It had good public schools, safe neighborhoods, et cetera, you know, all the kind of things that we want for our kids and what all kids deserve. Based on your career in public service, uh, you must have had very strong influences that impacted kind of how you saw the world and your role in it. Did you have any early mentors that were especially important to you? 
Yeah, I think the example of my dad and my grandmother were really important for me. Um, they're both public servants. So my dad has been a civil engineer for Metropolitan Water District for about 30 years now, I think. And before that, he was with the city of Los Angeles and the city of Santa Clarita. Uh, my grandmother was a LAUSD teacher for about 40 years. So I know some people look down on government employees, unfortunately, but I don't know, making sure we have water and teaching our kids. I mean, come on, what? Those are some of the most essential things that we need in our society. So having their examples to, to look up to, you know, growing up, it definitely made me admire and respect public service from, from a young age. Well, that's great to hear. You know, there is so often, like you said, they look, people look down on public service. And it's so great to hear that you have such respect for uh, the service of your family. Yeah, my family and of course, all of our city employees. I mean, they do incredible work day in and day out. So after high school, you went on to Princeton and you graduated with a degree in philosophy. So what drew you to philosophy? And were there any particular thinkers that you studied that really kind of shaped your thinking? So I actually started college as an engineering major. But then I thought, why would I ever do something so practical, like when I could study philosophy instead? And I thought, or I was, I think what, it, what really drew me to it was that it was so different than anything I'd come across before. You know, I really enjoyed tackling these big questions. You know, what, what is knowledge? Do we have free will? How do words have meaning? In very methodical ways that require clarity and precision of thought. And I think that's actually what makes it really practical. You know, being able to organize your thoughts and make clear and concise arguments. So I've found it really useful as a, as a lawyer, especially for my legal writing, which I use every day pretty much. In terms of who shaped my thinking, I don't know if anyone in particular stands up, stands out. Um, I did most of my independent work in my junior and senior years on free will. And honestly, not too much stuck with me other than we have no way to prove we have free will. So maybe we do, maybe we don't. I don't know. That's what I got from college. I studied philosophy in college as well, but I have a political science degree. Same area, I think. It's, it's all about critical thinking. When you graduate, you get a diploma and don't really know what it means. So that's, that's a disadvantage. Hopefully you've got those legal, or I'm sorry, those uh, writing and uh, argument skills to take with. Exactly. Writing papers about, you know, nothing and, and everything. Yeah. Oh, no, I literally wrote a paper. Like, uh, we know that there must be something. So like a metaphysical argument, we know that there must be something because in the vat, you know, there is only one null set. And so all the other alternative possible worlds have something in them. So like statistically, we're bound to be in a world with something. There you go. Wrote a paper about that. I don't know what good that does me now, but there you have it. <laughs> Following Princeton, you went on to law school at NYU, but decided to come back to California as a deputy attorney general. Why were you so attracted to serving in the public sector when you likely had so many different opportunities? Yeah, I think all those opportunities you're, you're sort of referring to or alluding to are ones to make a lot of money, which, yeah, sure, that's a thing you can do. But I never was really strongly drawn to that for some of the reasons we've already talked about. So for, but for a long time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to go down those one of those obvious paths like investment banking or consulting or working for a big law firm. It just didn't seem that interesting to me. And the money didn't seem like it was worth the poor work-life balance. So what I did know is that I've been very fortunate in my life and that I don't, I didn't feel like I needed more. I didn't need more money. I didn't need more stuff. Um, I knew I wanted to give back in some way. And so that's what drew me towards the public sector. Getting a job though was another ordeal. So I graduated law school in 2011. So right at the, the height of the Great Recession. And of course, I had a, a lot of debt. Law school is not cheap. And I ended up being unemployed for about a year after graduating, which was kind of scary. You know, I spent 
all that time going to college and law school, it's like, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to work. And there just weren't any jobs. And what I did is I figured, hey, I passed the bar. I'm licensed to practice all over the state. So I might as well broaden my search. And so I started applying for jobs all over the state. And that's how I ended up for my first job in Sacramento at the Attorney General's office. Around that same time, you became an officer in the U.S. Army Reserve, rising to the rank of major with the Judge Advocate General Corps. At a time when you were just kind of starting out your legal career, why did you feel a calling to join the Army? Yeah, I had always been interested in serving in the military as a way to get back potentially. And so throughout my early years or, or through my life, I, I looked for ways to do that. And so in high school, I took a, a close look at the service academies it's like West Point, Annapolis, and ended up deciding after taking a close look that, nope, I wanted more of a normal college experience. In college, though, I tried Army RTC my freshman year. But I wasn't quite ready to make the commitment to the Army at that point as an 18-year-old. 18, 18 so, like, if you, you know, sign on the dotted line as a, as a freshman in college, that's, that's 12 years. It's like four years of college, eight years after in combination of active reserve. And that just sounded like I couldn't comprehend that number as an 18-year-old. So, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to wait uh, for a little bit and see what I think later. And in law school, I took a look at the Army Reserve JAG Corps. And it seemed like a great way to, to serve and still have somewhat of a normal life, which is always nice. And it was. I just got out after serving nine years. After working for the State Department of Justice, you transitioned to your current position as deputy counsel for LA County. How different is it working at the county level versus the state? Yeah, you know, when I moved over to the county from the state, I sort of naively thought, well, the county's smaller than the state, so that must mean there's going to be less bureaucracy, right? But the county's huge. There's like 10 million people here, and it practically is its own state. You know, if it were a state, it'd be, I think, the seventh or eighth largest or something like that. So honestly, not too huge of a difference, uh, especially as a, as a litigator. It was more like moving from one state to another, I suppose. You and your husband moved to Pasadena in 2016 because you're both drawn to the area. Your husband's from Los Angeles as well. What about Pasadena makes this such a special place to live? Yeah, we both always wanted to end up here. So when we started looking to buy a home, it was the first place we looked. But I really knew for sure in my gut that this is where we needed to be was when we, we turned on, onto our street for the first time. And I saw the tree canopy and the beautiful craftsman homes and people out walking their dogs and people walking in strollers. felt like, wow, this is where we were meant to be all this time. And of course, as we got settled in, we got to know our neighbors and we really felt like we were part of a community right away. And I think that's what really makes Pasadena such a special place to live. Uh, the people, you know, there's a lot of civic pride and people working to make this place an even better place to live. And they brought us into the fold right away. My wife and I have a very similar story. My wife's from the East Coast. Uh, I, when we were, in, I was in graduate school in Houston and you decided to come out because of the Great Recession. I knew I kind of wanted to settle in an area that had a good neighborhood, people that were engaged. And so Pasadena had more of that feel because of its kind of tightness. And I grew up in the Griffith Park area, which has changed dramatically since I was a kid, whereas Pasadena is a little bit more dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. It's the first place that, you know, that I've been that I've, I've really felt that where we have the, an existing neighborhood association. People were reaching out to us, knocking on our door like, hey, come to the meeting. It's like, oh, OK, what's this about? This is really great. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember being invited to a neighborhood meeting and because I went, I was voted as president. <laughs> yeah. So you've remarked that you didn't really think you'd get into politics or seek elected office, but that 2016 really changed you. Tell me what you saw happening that year and why did you feel it was necessary to get involved? 
So I'm definitely not one to seek the limelight. I'm totally an introvert. Running for office was never on my radar. But then Trump happened in 2016. And I don't know, what is there to say that hasn't been said? You know, Trump is very bad. And it's actually kind of weird for me to talk about now because I was in the army back then and I was very limited in what I could could say about the president, the commander in chief. Uh, but now it's like, I don't know, I guess it's just just little things like aggressively leaning into xenophobia, misogyny, racism, undermining our fragile democratic institutions and norms, you know, just things like that. Basics. Yeah, the basics. Um, and so like a lot of people, you know, I was just really concerned about the direction our country is going. And I realized I could stew at home and angry all the time and just, you know, doom scrolling on Twitter, or I could get off my butt and, and try to do something. And so I, I really threw myself in the 2018 midterms and flipping the house and knocked on hundreds and hundreds of doors over that year. Um, but at the same time, I also started thinking, you know, why shouldn't I run for something? Maybe, you know, we need good, decent people to step up and lead or, or else look what happens. Before you were appointed to the city council, you were involved with your local neighborhood association, which is the Washington Square area, served on several commissions, including the Status of Women and the Northwest Commission and then volunteered for Councilmember Williams' campaign, former Congresswoman Katie Hill's campaign, and went through the Emerge California candidate program. To make the most impact, do you think people need to both serve their neighborhood on groups and commissions and play a role in local politics? Yeah, I think people should serve where they feel called for strong, most strongly. So that could be in your neighborhood association or on neighborhood watch. It could be by serving on a commission. It could be through your child's school or, or sport, sports teams. It could be through your church, you know, you name it. There are all these ways to get involved in our, our community. And all those things not only help your community, but help you understand what it needs. And that that's the key. I think that's what you need to have in order to be an effective advocate for you and your neighbors in, in local politics. So, I mean, when I see people reach out to me or advocate for the council, you know, it's those people who have that community engagement and, and are here in the community working day in and day out on those issues and know their neighbors. Like that's what makes them, it makes, you know, also my fellow council members effective advocates for, for everyone in our city. You've been on the city council since February of last year. What have been some of the largest lessons you've taken away from your first year on the council? And how do you think those lessons will guide you in the future? I think the biggest lesson that I've learned has been the importance of having regular uh, conversations with residents. You know, in order to do a good job representing my neighbors, I have to know what they think. And so I've really prioritized making myself accessible and also communicating what I've been up to. So I've done a, a, several things. So the first thing I've done is have monthly office hours. So every month I'm at a different location in the district for roughly two hours. So people can stop by and chat about whatever they want, you know, whatever is on their mind, whether it be something very hyper local, like right on their street, right, right where we're meeting, something that's been going on or some citywide issue. And so, so far we've ha- held them, you know, in parks and in, businesses and front yards and backyards virtually just all throughout the district. Another thing I've done is have a monthly newsletter where I actually explain, you know, what are the big issues that came before the council over the past month and why I voted the way I did. I'm actually surprised that's not more common among amongst elected officials. I know it takes time. It's, it's a lot of work. But at the end of the day, most of our job does come down to casting those votes in meetings. And so you might as well explain what you voted, voted for and why. And so I've gotten a lot of good feedback from people on that. Another thing I do is just try to be really responsive to emails and, and texts. 
it really is a time commitment, but I think it's important. You know, people take time out of their day to write you a well thought out message about uh, something that's going on in our neighborhoods or, or in the city, and they deserve a response or even a follow up so we can, you know, ha- continue that conversation in person or on the phone. So those are all things that I've found really, really helpful and vitally important, important and that I'll for sure continue to do. I think they're just necessary to doing the job. So you've identified affordable housing and homelessness as several of the largest issues that we face as a city. You know, these are really complex issues that involve market dynamics, developments, nonprofit, other cities, et cetera. How can we today address these problems while also thinking long-term about more permanent solutions? Well, like you said, it's, it's a complex issue with a lot of moving parts. And so there are a lot of things that we need to do and no one thing is going to magically solve it. In my mind, though, I think the overarching goal has to be that we have more housing across the board at all levels. So affordable, middle income, market rate, but with particular attention on affordable and, and that missing middle. And as to the missing middle piece of it, I'm really proud of what the council and our housing department has done over the past year. We've added over a thousand units of missing middle workforce housing. Uh, I should say, sorry, I should say converted. We didn't add it. So it's not new construction. Through this uh, arrangement of joining a joint powers authority, they acquired the buildings and are keeping the rents at rates that people can afford. So if you live in the, one of those affected buildings and you are you know, a middle income renter, your rent was instantly lowered to a level you can afford and well, you'll be able to continue to afford into the moving into the future. And so we're talking about people in our neighborhoods like nurses, teachers, construction workers, tradespeople, young professionals, people who tend to earn too much to qualify for traditional low income housing, but can't keep up with the market rate rent, market rate rents. And so now again, they'll be able to stay here and not get pushed out, which is really, really important. I'd say another thing we have to keep in mind is that you know, this is, of course, a, reg- a regional issue. It's not just Pasadena. We alone can't solve it. And so that's where our arena number comes in, which, of course, is the, the regional housing needs allocation number. And it's the amount of housing that the state says each local municipality needs to add to ensure there's enough housing in the region as a whole. So right now we're going through that process of updating our housing element, which is the city's plan for how and where housing will be built. And it's really important. I really want to make sure it's more than a theoretical exercise, that we're not just checking the box on a state requirement and telling the state, yeah, you know, we're good. Our zoning theoretically has the cap- capacity to meet our arena number. It really should be a concrete plan on how to get there. So in reviewing our draft housing element back in the fall a few months ago, I made a motion that ended up being adopted direct staff to submit our our draft, our initial draft, but to continue working on adding concrete and measurable strategies to increase our affordable housing. So that should be coming back to the council soon um, so that we can review it and then hopefully submit our final draft. I think affordable housing, like you said, is really critical. The podcast had a conversation with our fire chief. And during that conversation, he shared that I think he's one of of nine out of 180 employees in the fire department that actually live in Pasadena, which is incredible. And I assume that's probably the same way with the police department and across many city departments. And that's it's a tragedy because especially for the fire department and police departments, I mean, these are community focused departments. You really need to know your neighbors. You really need to know kind of the dynamics of the, of the city. And if you don't live here, it makes it extremely challenging. Absolutely. I think just the fact that you uh, highlight those two departments, those are very, you know, they're, those are well-paid positions. They, they pay, they're paid very well. And it's the fact that they can't afford to work here just speaks volumes about how unaffordable housing has become. One of my best friends recently moved from your district, District 5, 
to Glendora because him and his wife wanted to ha- buy a home and Pasadena just wasn't wasn't in the cards because of affordability. So, you know, we lost a really good couple to Glendora. And I'm glad they found a place, but, you know, that's obviously a loss to, to Pasadena. People that really love the city that can't afford homes here. Yeah, no, just to touch on losing people, you know, we talk a lot or it comes up a lot, the, the phrase, you know, anytime we're trying to address these issues, people worry about, you know, what that's going to affect the character of the neighborhoods, the character of the city. But to me, the character of our city is the people. Like, if we're losing our people. That's, you know, we're, that's the whole problem. This is kind of an interesting question, and it's very specific. It's regarding SB9. What do you think the impact will be on Pasadena? And will you think it will impact kind of housing opportunities in the city? Yeah, so no one knows exactly how it's all going to play out, but I am cautiously optimistic that we're going to see a modest increase in units that will fit well within the character of our neighborhoods because SB9 allows us to establish what they call objective design standards. So things like square footage maximums and landscaping requirements. So we make sure we have enough open space and trees and new units don't take up the whole footprint of a lot. Um, I think that's something folks have been concerned about. So we've already adopted a short list of things like that on a temporary basis and then over the next next few months and, and year, we'll be working on establishing permanent standards. I just have to say, I, I really don't think that having a few more duplexes, ADUs, or a few lots that's are going to destroy our neighborhoods like a lot of people are worried or, or have suggested. And I think I keep reason for that. I think the three-year residency requirement, that does it, that seems to get overlooked or not addressed in, by folks who have, you know, have concerns about SB9. I think that's going to be key. That's going to prevent speculators from buying up tons of lots. You know, how can they? How are they going to live in all of them for three years? Before? Um, so to the extent we're worried about that provision not having enough teeth or not being effective, I think that's where we should focus our attention and work collaboratively, collaboratively on the state because I think it is an important protection to make sure we don't have speculators coming in and just buying up buying up land. You drive through Pasadena and I'm sure you'll find a house or two that are empty that were bought by someone that does not live here. They're just holding on to. I know there's a, there's a house around the corner from me that an old woman passed away. Someone bought it, renovated it, and it's been vacant for literally probably three years. And it's fully renovated, but there's no one living there. And it's really unfortunate because it's obviously, you know, a family could live there, two families could live there, you know, and it's just, it's sitting there vacant. And- right. They're just holding on to it to make the most profit. Yeah. So one question that I ask small business owners on this podcast is whether we do enough as a city to encourage people, especially people of color, to start or grow their own business. And the answer has largely been no. Are there any policies or approaches that you think of that we can consider to help small businesses in Pasadena, especially as we enter our third year of the pandemic? I think a big thing we can do is just make it easier for small businesses to interact with with the city when they need to. I was speaking with uh, David Klug, the head of our economic development team and the new lead staff member for the EdTech Committee. And that is absolutely one of our, our top priorities. Something else that has come up recently in the whole cannabis permitting process is also the idea of establishing something like a separate social equity permit process, which I'm really interested in. So the idea would be that those who have been most harmed by our recent by our past laws around cannabis would get assistance to enter this new legal cannabis market. I just saw an article in the LA Times this week, though, suggesting that other equity programs across the state haven't been all that successful in reaching that goal. So I'm hoping we can learn from what other jurisdictions have tried. And then as we close out our current permitting process, which I think we're, we're close to doing if we, or if we haven't done already, um, and then we'll move forward to looking at a social, a separate social equity program, we can take those lessons learned from what other folks have already tried to do. 
But we all can recognize that there's growing income inequality and employment gaps that have taken on a new dimension with the pandemic. How do you think we can reduce some of this divide so that we don't have two Pasadenas? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And thank you for, for raising us because I think income and wealth inequality is one of the greatest challenges that we as a, as a country have to confront. And you see it play play out right here in the city. Unfortunately, I think a big piece of the puzzle has to be addressed at the federal level through our, our tax policy. But that doesn't mean there are things we can do right here. One thing we could have done recently is adopt a, a hero or hazard pay ordinance to put more money directly in the pockets of our essential workers. So folks who work in grocery stores and pharmacies, they risk not only their health, but also their family's health and saw higher rates of infection and death over that first year of the pandemic while allowing the rest of us to stay safe at home. Um, and unfortunately, that failed to pass four to four in a four to four vote in March of last year. And not too much later on in the year, of course, Kroger then decided to use their record profits to buy back a million dollars in, I'm sorry, a billion, not a million, a billion dollars in stock um, instead of sharing that with their workers through just a temporary pay bump for all the, the hazards they were exposed to. So I was and remained really disappointed that we didn't take that step to help so many Pasadenans when we had the chance. Um, so that was an example of one thing we could have done. Another thing we can do is doing things like ensuring we're promoting representation of people from all walks of life on the council and not just well, independently wealthy people. Um, I think that's a, that is for sure a big reason why I'm in favor of keeping our campaign contribution limits in place. So our council districts are relatively small, you know, about 20,000 people. And within there, within that, there's even fewer registered voters. I know in District 5, I think it's around 11,000 registered voters. So it's not a huge election to run, or it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't require six-figure uh, campaigns for a primary and a general. Like It very quickly, you know, with unlimited campaign or with unlimit, with no limits on campaign, campaign contributions really gets out of hand. And the question then becomes, you know, who has time to raise that much money? And who has the personal network that they can tap into to raise that much money? It's not, you know, regular people trying to work and take care of kids, try to get by. It's going to be independently wealthy people, people who work for themselves, retired people, which not to say they don't have a voice or they don't deserve a voice as well, but we need to make sure everyone has a voice. So I was proud to to be the, the sole dissenting vote against getting rid of our campaign contribution limit last summer. It was a six to one vote. And so even though I was the only one, it's fortunately, the limit is still in place. Because when it came back to the council after that vote for the actual ordinance to be adopted, there was just an outpouring of public outcry against it. And I think that allowed the council to just pause and be like, hey, let's let's take a closer look at this. And so we sent it back down to our legislative policy committee um, for further study. And that's where it still is. So as of right now, we're still with the, the limit, which is set by the state, um, which is $4,900, which is pretty significant. That's, that's a lot. It's pretty high, I think. So I think it allows uh, candidates to raise the money they need to, but without getting, you know, this really, really high contributions that make the, the, the total the total sums get out of hand. You've been very vocal about the limit. Brandon Lamar, who's running for District 3, has also been vocal about it. So I'm glad to see that there's some voices in the community that are pushing for such a limit. Our council and our mayor's races are getting becoming so expensive. Who has the time to raise that kind of money in order to compete for, like you said, it's only 11,000 votes in your district. You shouldn't have to have tens of thousands of dollars to afford to run a campaign, a successful campaign for the council. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for sure there's, 
it's worth there's a distinction i think between the council districts and the mayor's race yes absolutely one is much larger than the other so i think it, I, i'm totally open i think it makes sense you can you know you can have different rates for different limits for for them so you know we'll see what happens with from the legislative policy committee Interesting. Well, we'll certainly be watching. Former White House advisor and official David Axelrod has said that the greatest threat to our democracy is cynicism and believing that we can't make a difference. How do you think we can kind of push back on this and show people that the government can really work for them? I think a big challenge is that people see kind of the circus of national politics and the toxicity on social media or cable news. And they assume all levels of government are like that. But I have to say, in my experience, it's really not like that here. So I say, get get involved in local government. You can make a difference. You can actually call up your council member and have a cup of coffee with them and share your thoughts. You can get involved with commissions and committees. We're constantly establishing committees of citizens to get their feedback. And so you're, there's always ways to get involved. You can talk directly to the city manager and staff. Like it's just the, the amount of access and number of ways to get involved is really, really incredible in our city. So I think that kind of direct experience is what it takes to overtake, overcome the cynicism that we're, we're sort of conditioned to by what we see on TV and, and online. When you were appointed by the council to serve District 5, you shared that where the rubber meets the road in our democracy is in the council chambers. From what you've seen, do you think this is still the case? And can we balance taking care of the small things like fixing potholes? It's always the easy example, but also kind of create a grand vision for the future. Yeah, I think we have to. I, I don't think any of those things are, are small. I mean, local government oversees all of those things that directly affect our lives every day. So the potholes, the ro- you know, the roads we drive on, the roads we bike on, the sidewalks we walk on, the water we drink, the electricity that powers our homes, the parks our kids play in, law enforcement, of course, etc. You know, you name it. These are the things that that affect our lives every day. And I think the count, the job of the council is exactly what you're saying to create that grand vision for the future. For me, I want to make sure that Pasadena is a place that works for everyone. So our city, but especially my district in particular, is incredibly diverse. We're, of course, ethnically diverse, but we're also a district of single family neighborhoods and multifamily units. We've got renters and homeowners, young families, uh, young working families, retirees, immigrants, unhoused folks, just people from all walks of life. And so our city should be a place that works for all of us so that we can all thrive here. And so every decision I make on all these little issues that come up, like every vote I cast is filtered through that lens and wanting to make sure that we, especially prioritizing the needs of those who historically haven't had a voice. One aspect of politics that I don't think gets enough attention is that local elections and office holders are really the farm system to our national democracy. Um, at a time when it's becoming more dangerous to be in public office, how do we recruit and inspire the next generation? And uh, before you answer, I'd like to share a story of mine. I haven't run for office. I've served on two public commissions now. But several years ago, my local council member asked if I, did, I would host a coffee at my house. And what followed afterwards was my family got anonymous letters in the mail from a very interesting person that over the course of a year, that really made us uncomfortable. And, you know, it was one of those things where you couldn't, they couldn't trace it because it was fictitious name, fictitious address, and they're making just kind of like outlandish statements. And my wife said to me, she's like, we're never doing this again. I don't feel comfortable doing it. It's sad because, and that's like the bare minimum of what we, what we can do is host our neighborhood to have a discussion about the issues that are affecting us. 
So kind of going back to the, my question, you know, how do we recruit more people when we see more elected officials on the local level under attack potentially? Yeah, God, I'm so sorry you went through that. For me thus far, it's only been a year. I haven't had anything along those lines, thankfully. I, I was worried that, you know, something like that would happen or just like online harassment or just, you know, weird, crazy things that happen that you hear about. But thankfully, you know, none of that has happened. And, you know, the campaign the campaign is ramp- will be ramping up. So we'll see if that, any of that starts. Unfortunately, hopefully it, it doesn't. So yeah, no, I think that is for sure a big reason why people don't want to get involved. I think another thing that we have to to grapple with is that I think there's so many people like, like yourself who are already serving their communities and in different ways and doing good work. What's the tipping point for them to, to get involved? And I think a lot of it is that running for office and being in office is just kind of a black box. No one knows what it's actually like, except for the, the bad parts, like what you're what you're referring to. And so it's hard to imagine what it's like to do it or to ever hold office. And you, you just don't see yourself ever doing it. And for me, I distinctly remember a moment from January 2018 at an Emerge California event. I was having a conversation with three other women all about my age. So like late 20s, early 30s back then, who were running for Congress or recently ran. And just standing there in that group I, and talking to them, I realized... Hey, these these are my peers. Like, if they can do it, I can do it. So, I don't know. Maybe one weird trick to inspiring the next generation of leaders is to take a lot of people who are already doing the important work and and have them shadow me. <laughs> they can see, hey, if Jess can do it, I can do it. And so, I think it is really important. You know, I joke, but to, for it's important for for people like me, people who are in office, to to let people know what it is like. And so, at least I can share it. I haven't had any of those scary things happen yet. Hopefully, they don't. But that's awful to hear. The idea of potentially acting as a mentor and showing people that it can be done, I think is a wonderful idea. You know, as a father of three daughters, you know, I want them to grow up in a in a time where they're drawn to, you know, politics and civic engagement and having that connection with somebody that is in that position, I think would be really helpful to see and a really positive example of that. Yeah, that's essentially what, you know, programs like Emerge California are all about is just, you know, seeing other women do it and and provide that mentorship. District 5 is a really interesting mix of neighborhoods. You have your native Washington Square area, parts of Bungalow Heaven, a slice of Colorado, which every district has, as well as part of the 210 Freeway, Mountain and Orange Grove corridors. What are your favorite parts of the district? And are there any places that you recommend eating or shopping in particular? Yeah. So I, I'm biased. So I have to say my own neighborhood. Of course. Understood. Washington Square, you know, it's home and it felt like home from the very first time we turned onto our street all those years ago. And even more so as we got to know our neighbors through our neighborhood association. One of my favorite events is our annual block party, which we haven't held for the last two years because of the pandemic. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll have it again this summer. We're lucky there's a lot that we can walk to. And so in terms of places to eat and shop, I love walking over to Roma Deli home with a sandwich, grabbing some sandwiches. We've got a bunch of other great stuff too. Got Roscoe's right by us, Rain Cafe. So we're, we're just lucky to have a lot of places that we can reach on foot. It's it's a really nice. They're, they're part of our, neighbor, our neighborhood. Are there any nonprofits that you are especially proud of? There are so many. So I'm especially proud and grateful for the work of our nonprofits that work with young people. Um, and we have many of them. Adelante Youth Alliance provides an incredible amount of resources and support to our youth, for our local youth uh, to succeed both academically and just in their lives all around. PCDA, Professional Children Development Associates, is right here on Lake and they help children with all sorts of de- developmental delays and disabilities. 
There's a little uh, group that got started recently called Friends of Madison Elementary, started by some District 5 residents, and they work to support, directly support the students and the teachers of Madison's with, Madison with whatever they need. Aside from those that work with youth, there's, of course, the Pasadena Job Center, which supports our day laborers and migrant and low-wage workers. So they've truly been a lifeline for so many people through the pandemic, you know, providing groceries, continuing their core mission of connecting people with jobs, helping get the vaccine out. It's really amazing what they've been able to do. And of course, Union Station is in District 5. Uh, so another stalwart, not just of our district and city, but for the whole San Gabriel Valley for all the work they do for our unhoused neighbors. A new one in our district is Lineage Performing Arts Center, which just moved into the district right next to the CVS on Mountain and Lake right before the pandemic. And so they now have a beautiful space for dance, music, theater, classes, and performances for the community. So I, I could go on and on. There's a bunch. We're really lucky to have so many in District 5. When I look back on the things that you've done, you are the very definition of public service. And you've said publicly that your calling is to serve the greater good. And that's very clear with this conversation that we've had. You've worked at the state level and local level. You've served our country in the, in the Army Reserve and are now an elected official. But you're also a parent. Uh, you had a pandemic baby, which we were talking about before we started the recording. How do you find the time to do it all? Yeah. And actually, that's a question I could ask you. I mean, and I, another question for you is, is that a question you would ask a, a male candidate? Because I, I would hope you would, because we're all parents going through this crazy time with young kids. So it is, I hope we normalize asking that question of, of all young parents. That's a very good question. And I haven't had the opportunity to ask that question. So you're the first person I've had to. If there's a young father, I would, I would certainly ask that because I, I am one. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. So, um, it is a lot. It has been a lot, but it, and it was a lot at first, that first month or two was pretty overwhelming, but it's been more manageable as I kind of settled in. I do most of my work, most of my city work in the evenings after my daughter goes to bed. There's of course council meetings on Mondays and I have committee meetings on Tuesdays. And then during the day on, during the weekday, I usually take a few calls during my lunch hour. So there's a lot to kind of juggle and balance, but it is pretty manageable as long as I kind of keep everything compartmentalized and stay on track. There are of course days that completely blow up. And fall apart, I'm sure you know, <laughs> with little ones around. But it's been relatively, I don't say easy to manage. It's, I've been able to, to juggle it all. The hard part or the new thing that that's hard is uh, adding the campaign on top of that. And that has been interesting because there's always so many things to do for that. Even now, you know, even early on, of course, the election is until June. There's just so much day to day to work on. So it's just, I get less sleep, basically. <laughs> uh, I can certainly relate to that. When you think about the next five years, the next 10 years and beyond, what do you envision for Pasadena's future and what role do you see yourself playing in it? Yeah. So I, if the last few years have taught us anything, it's that you can't, can't really make plans for too far ahead and get ready to, for those plans to be thrown out the window. Um, so I don't know if I'll look too far ahead, but I feel like in the immediate future, there's a lot of work that to be done right here and right now. And so first off, I want to see us emerge from the pandemic on solid financial footing, I think for the city as a public entity, that is our greatest challenge, getting our finances on the right path. And because we can't do any of the bold, ambitious things that we want to do until we get that sorted out. And of course, a big part of that is the Rose Bowl debt obligation, which the operating company has been working on over the past several months. And they're going to be returning to the council, I believe, in February, March. Now I want to say maybe March, April, soon, this spring, to so that we can really make have a concrete 
plan in place to 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 get us on the right path again. And then another thing is I, I want to be a part of establishing a new generation of city leadership. So of course, we're, right now we're in that hiring process for a new city manager who will have a lot of department head positions to fill. And so I know we have a lot of homegrown talent and I'm sure we'll also bring some amazing people from elsewhere. And I'm just really excited to see that new team come together. So I see myself continuing to play a critical role in both of those things. And it's going to be a lot uh, over the next couple of years. What do you think are the, the most important values that you want to instill in your daughter through your example of public service? Yeah, I hope to instill a sense of humility, to, to take the work of serving others seriously, to not take yourself so seriously. And I think that's an often overlooked value, but it's really helpful when we're working together and trying to get things done, important things done for, for our community. Right now, though, I'm just trying to potty train her, <laughs> which is hard. Small steps. Yeah. We'll get there. I have one formal question. As, as our final question. But before that, I wanted to ask a fun and cool question. The Rose Bowl is hosting a concert in August that features the Strokes, LCD sound system, and Pasadena native uh, Phoebe Bridgers, amongst many, many others. And you recently remarked that this show was made just for you. So you're not only on the city council, but you're also someone that has city council meetings or public meetings with um, three Wilco posters in the back. So who are some of your favorite bands and what are you listening to now if if and when you listen to anything because you have very little time? Yeah. And so it's it, there's actually two, not one, but two shows that were made just for me, solely for me. We have the, the Just Like Heaven one, which I think is the one in May. Then in August, it's the Ain't No Picnic, which is going to have Interpol and... I'm blanking on the other big act, but it's another one right in that thing wheelhouse. Oh gosh, favorite band right now? Yeah, I don't, I don't listen to a whole lot of music. I, I used to listen while I drove because I, I would drive to work. That would be my chance to listen to music. I don't have that opportunity anymore. I'm trying to think of a band that I've recently gotten into. My husband and I just went to go see a, a, a live show for the first time, which we haven't done in years because of the pandemic. But we saw the band uh, Titus Andronicus, which has a it was a 10 year anniversary of their uh, Civil War concept album, which sounds really kind of bizarre, but it's a really good album. And so we got to see them live in November before the, before the, the latest COVID wave. Where was that show? It was in Chicago. So we actually... It was exciting. It was our first time away from the baby for from our daughter. So I flew out there just for a night just to see them and came back. And it was a lot of fun. Very cool. I'm glad you made that time to do that. So final question, like how you got involved back in 2016, how can people support your campaign or the other work that you're doing in the community? Yeah, if you want to make Pasadena a place that works for everyone like I do, and is kind of the whole goal of the campaign and my service on the council, please check out my website, justforpasadena.com. My handle on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter is at Just for Pasadena. And I really hope you, you join me. And there's really no better way to get to know our city than going out on knocking on the doors of your neighbors and talking about talking to them and finding out what makes them tick, what concerns they have. And so whether you've knocked on thousands of doors before, or you haven't knocked on a single door, you know, I'd really love to have you join me. Thank you very much for being a great part of Pasadena, for your leadership and service at such an important time and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much.
my many thanks to Council Member Rivas for coming on the show. From our conversation, it is clear that Jess is part of a new generation of community leaders. Those that understand the legislative process, know the importance of communication, and believe in service to the greater good. One would think that these qualities would be prerequisites to hold public office, but sadly that is not often the case. As seen from a town hall meeting she hosted to discuss gun violence, to how she explains her council votes to her constituents, Jess has shown to be a creative and caring voice for District 5. And I look forward to seeing her lead during her next term in office, as she has gathered an impressive list of endorsements and is currently running unopposed. And finally, a little indie and punk rock never hurt anyone either. For more information about City Council District 5, please visit cityofpasadena.net slash district5 and follow them on Twitter and Instagram. And to learn more about Jessica and her campaign, please visit jessforpasadena.com. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. The podcast can be found on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, among many others. Please consider supporting the show either through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, stay engaged, and as always, see you around town.